It is utterly unfathomable to us to think that at some point in the future, there will be millions upon millions of God's people gathered like this with innumerable angels worshiping the Lamb of God seated on the throne. This is just a little reminder. You know, every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's meant to be a little reminder of that future heavenly wedding feast between Christ, the bridegroom, and the church, the bride. And every time we gather to sing God's praises, we are getting a little picture of that heavenly chorus as we gather around the throne and worship our God forever. So I pray that we feel the weight of this this morning. Not just another day, not just another first day of the week or the end of the weekend, but a special picture for us of these eternal realities that we so much look forward to. One of the things that I have personally appreciated most about Romans is how clearly it explains the Christian life. Um, As we've been going through Romans so far, there may be things, and this happens with any book, there may be things that you have paid particular attention to or that have had a specific impact on your Christian life, on your way of thinking, your way of acting. And so you could go through, I think we'd probably get different answers from everyone in this room. Uh, Some would agree, but uh, the Lord has used his word in each of our lives differently. And For me, one of the outstanding features of Romans is all that it says about the nuts and bolts and the reality of the Christian life. Identity in Christ, struggle against sin, the sanctifying work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what we were saved from, what we do now every day as Christians, as believers, and what we will be. These are just some of the really big ideas that we've covered over the last few months. The last few chapters of Romans in particular have filled our minds with thoughts of assurance and holiness. Those are two big themes, two big ideas, I think two big takeaways. If you've been following for the last few months, for the last few chapters, what, uh, what are we supposed to take away from these sermons, from these texts? Assurance and holiness are really two of the biggest ideas. And this emphasis on assurance reaches its pinnacle here in chapter 8, where hope and glory take center stage. There is a reason why Romans chapter 8 is so special to Christians and has been throughout the history of the church. And it is because it reaches this pinnacle of heavenly glory. Hope and glory collide as we come to the middle and end of Romans chapter 8. If you would please go with me in your Bibles at this time to Romans 8 verses 18 to 25. That's going to be our chunk of text that we're going to seek to understand. Seek to, uh, my, I'm seeking to explain these verses and I pray that all of us this morning are are seeking to understand the intention of Paul as the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he wrote these verses in their context. Romans 8, 18 to 25. The title for the sermon this morning is Awaiting Glory. Awaiting Glory. And in order to situate this passage neatly in its context, we really need to hone in on two words in particular. And here they are, spirit and suffering. As we try to situate this text within its context, within the running argument and the running logic of the Apostle Paul up to verse 18, up to this point, we really need to highlight two words to encapsulate that context. And they are spirit and suffering. Up to this point in Romans 8, Paul has been explaining life in the spirit. That's been the big idea. We are set free from sin in the Spirit. We fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law in the Spirit. We live in the Spirit and have our minds set on the things of the Spirit. We are indwelt 
by the Spirit by whom God raises the dead. We are debtors to the Spirit. We kill sin by the Spirit. And we relate to God as Abba, Father, by the crying out of the Spirit. In short, as we saw last week, we are led by the Spirit. And let me just say this. This is important for us, I think. Uh, People will oftentimes say, particularly in the charismatic movement, will oftentimes say that that non-charismatics don't make enough about the Spirit. And what they're saying is that uh, where there is the absence of these sort of ecstatic experiences... Uh, There is a a de-emphasis on the Spirit. But that's not the case at all. We've talked nothing about those uh, supposed experiences, those ecstatic experiences. And yet we've had so much to say about the Spirit of the living God. And so, the prayer is that we will not neglect the Spirit, but that we will also not pervert what the Bible teaches about the role and work of the Spirit in the life of God's people. We are led by the Spirit. And we see the continuation of this theme in our passage for today. As verse 23 describes us as those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. So we're still very much talking about life in the Spirit as we come to verse 23 and we, we read that we are those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That tells us that everything that Paul is saying in verses 18 to 25 has to do still with life in the Spirit. So that's the first channel, if you will, of context that is flowing into our passage for today. But the second channel that flows into our passage, is this word suffering. Suffering. Remember where we left off last week in verse 17. I want to read that verse to you again. Uh, And if children, Paul's saying we are children of God, and he says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul moves directly from this mention of suffering in verse 17 to what we find here in verse 18. So you can look there uh, here for a moment. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what am I saying? Just to sum it up in terms of the context, what we have is in the spirit plus the reality of suffering. These two things, the big idea of the beginning of Romans 8 in the Spirit, and we've seen all of that, is moving into this passage. And then this little comment that Paul makes in the preceding verse about suffering is also moving into the passage. And these two coalesce, they come together. Where does it leave us? And the answer that Paul gives in verses 18 to 25 is simple. It leaves us awaiting glory. That's what it is to be in the Spirit and to face suffering as we all do. It is to be awaiting glory. To be a Christian is to be awaiting glory. And Paul describes this awaiting in three steps. And that's what we're going to look at today. These these will be our three points for today if you're taking notes. I once heard heard someone say, uh, he he was, uh, it's a non-denominational pastor, but he was saying that uh, the, way, the way Baptists say amen is they just say amen really loud. And the way Presbyterians say amen is they just start taking notes, uh, feverishly taking notes. Either of those is fine here. Uh, however it is, you say amen. But if you are a note taker, these, uh, these will be our three points for today to help us sort of walk our way through the text. So here they are, our sufferings reinterpreted. Our world renewed and our bodies redeemed. That is what Paul unpacks for us here in, these, uh, in this set of verses. So if you would go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We will start at the beginning of chapter 8 as we have done. And my prayer is that we'll listen closely to this as we're going through these verses. Just pay careful attention to Paul's logic because what Thomas prayed earlier is absolutely true. And that is that what we are after is the scripture. 
We're not after some man getting up and saying things to you. We're after uh, looking at what God says in his word. And, and the, the, the job here, as I see it, is to explain what God has said here in his word. And we best do that by seeing the logic of the apostle himself as we come up to our verses. So here we are, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are. Sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then for our passage for today, verses 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help this morning as we seek to understand what the Spirit has inspired here for us as food to eat. You know, we've come to the trough uh, not the trough we used to baptize uh, this morning. That, that, was, that was before. But we come to the trough, as it were, seeking food to eat from the Lord. We're here to feed as the flock of Christ to feed on his word. His word is our food. This is how our lives as Christians are sustained. And so let's pray that the Lord would indeed feed us and that he would, by his grace, help us in our mortal bodies to focus as we go through this period of our service. Father, thank you for this time to be together again as believers, as uh, those gathered here at Four Corners Church. 
your people gathered here in this local place. Father, we thank you for this building that we have to gather in and uh, the, just the, the chairs we have to sit on and, and uh, the, the pulpit we have to put our Bibles on. Lord, there's, there's so many blessings, the little things that you've provided that we take for granted. We thank you for them this morning, Father. We thank you that we have breath in our lungs, we have uh, light in our eyes, that we are alive today, and that in your providence we are alive here under the, the teaching of your word, under the, the songs of praise sung by your people, under the prayers of your people. God, we are so grateful for this opportunity, and we ask God that it would be used well. We pray that you would hold our minds to what is being taught, to what is being read. God, we ask that your spirit would show each of us how this word applies to our specific situations, our lives, our struggles, our temptations. Lord, some among us this morning, probably unconverted, not Christians. Uh, Maybe they know they are, they're not, Lord, but maybe they're deceived into thinking they are, Lord. Would you just bring truth, bring clarity to their consciences? And God, we pray for those of us who are converted, who are believers, who have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in us, who are led by the Spirit, for whom there is now no condemnation. We pray, God, that 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 growth in assurance and holiness and hope of glory would just grow exponentially this morning within us as we sit under your word. God, we thank you for this time. We ask that your Spirit would do his work as you promise he will do, in Jesus' name, amen. So awaiting glory, and the first thing we see as we come to these verses is our sufferings reinterpreted. And for this, we're just going to look at that very first verse, verse 18. So put your eyes there with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that's a verse we just need to memorize and and meditate on uh, every hour of every day. And maybe for those uh, this morning who are undergoing some very heavy suffering, I pray that those words will just linger for you over the coming days, that the Holy Spirit will just keep those right before your eyes. Suffering is something that all human beings share in common. There is moral evil and natural evil, as philosophers and theologians like to categorize everything, moral evil and natural evil. Uh, We experience the evil from moral agents, uh, murders and thefts and so forth. This moral evil is evil carried out, sin carried out by the hearts and actions and minds and intentions of moral agents, human beings. So it would also include uh, the demons and Satan. They are moral beings. They are intelligent Beings, And then there is natural evil, which is evil associated with this world. Hurricanes and uh, malaria and other forms of disease, uh, natural death. All of these things are, are examples of natural evil. We experience the effects of both of these around us and in us. So it's not just a moral evil and natural evil are found out there and we're just kind of dropped in the middle of it and we've got to deal with it. No, no, no. We find natural evil and moral evil within our very selves. Natural evil in our brokenness, in our mortal bodies. We get sick. We ultimately die. We essentially fall apart. And we sin. Both around us and in us, we see these evils. By the way, it reminds us as parents, as we think about our children, uh, moral evil is not just something that is out there encroaching in on our children. And we got to sort of build this box and put them in a box or a fence. And as long as those walls are tall enough and those Fences are tall enough. Daniel was sharing this yesterday in his talk at our day men's retreat. You know, we can build those walls and those fences only so high in the thought that we're protecting them from the onslaught of moral evil. But guess what? 
There is moral evil in the heart of your child and my, chi- my children, in all of our hearts. Around us and within us, we find these evils and the suffering that is in the wake of these evils. But we know from verse 17 that Paul is specifically referring to the sufferings of Christians here, those who suffer with Christ. He's just said that in verse 17. And in the context, Paul may be referring primarily to our sufferings as we fight sin and face persecution. We think of suffering with Christ as we are mortifying our flesh. That was in the context from last week. And as we follow Christ, we pick up our cross and follow him. We think of John 21 where Jesus turns around and looks at the apostle Peter and basically tells him that he's going to have to suffer in a very specific way. I think looking forward to his crucifixion, which history says he was crucified upside down. But he's going to, be, he's going to suffer and die in a very specific way for Christ. And we know that Jesus had a lot to say to his disciples about the suffering that they would have to endure through persecution for the sake of his name. We find this even in the very opening words of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of this Christ, is that we suffer persecution. Everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But in Christ, I think we can say that all of our sufferings are working out God's purposes in us and can be folded into what Paul is saying here. So James refers to trials of various kinds, for example, in James chapter 1, verse 2. And Peter refers also in the first chapter of his first epistle, he refers to various trials. And Paul himself, at the end of chapter 8, gives us a little list of various kinds of suffering. So we read it in verse 35. You can look ahead. Chapter 8, verse 35, gives us a little, little list there of sufferings. Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. All kinds of things we see there. So I think broadly understood, Paul seems to have in mind all that we endure as Christians who live in the Spirit in our mortal bodies. Remember the context is that we are carrying around these mortal bodies which share in that old inadamness. We've been made new in our inner man, in our inner woman, in our inner being. We've been made new. We are a new creation in Christ. But we carry around these mortal bodies which participate still in that old inadamness. And so so Paul seems to have in mind really all that we experience in Christ led by the Spirit in these mortal bodies. All that we experience in this sphere or context in which we find ourselves that can be called sufferings. Let me give you a quote from one commentator, Douglas Moo, uh, as he kind of goes down this road explaining it in in this way. These sufferings of the present time are not only those trials that are endured directly because of confession of Christ, for instance, persecution, but encompass the gamut of suffering, including things such as illness, bereavement, hunger, financial reverses, and death itself. To be sure, Paul has spoken of our suffering in verse 17 as suffering with Christ. But there is a sense in which all the suffering of Christians is with Christ. Inasmuch as Christ was himself subject by virtue of his coming in the form of sinful flesh to the manifold sufferings of this world in rebellion against God. The word Paul uses here refers to sufferings in any form. So we can think about this, I think, particularly, but we can also think about this broadly as we think about suffering. Let me say it to you this way. You say, what's he talking about? What's his point? Let me say it to you this way. Whatever suffering you are experiencing this morning, Christian, fits here. 
right? So verse 18 speaks to your suffering Christian, whatever it may be. And what Paul says here is that these sufferings characterize our present situation, the now of our life in this world. But whereas the sufferings of those outside of Christ are overwhelming and hopeless, it is the exact opposite for the Christian. For those who are in Christ, these sufferings are not even worthy. Listen to what Paul says here. Not even worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul is referring to our future glorification with Christ, the coming of Christ. Let me just give you two verses here uh, to put a little bit more meat on what Paul is saying. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So you're, you're moving through this life now. You are hidden with Christ in God. We are, we've been raised up and seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. We are in Christ. And when Christ appears on the scene, on the earthly scene, we will appear with him like him. He will appear gloriously and we will be gathered to him gloriously. Let me give you another verse, 1 Peter 4, 13. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoicing and suffering just seem to have nothing to do with one another. I mean, it's the exact opposite of what we think when we are suffering. Suffering is is the opposite in our minds in a human way of thinking to to rejoicing. Suffering and rejoicing seem to have nothing to do with each other. And yet in the New Testament, for the Christian, these two things are just woven together. This beautiful tapestry of godly living. In other words, the magnitude of what's coming shrinks to nothingness the weight of whatever we are presently experiencing. Let me say that again. The magnitude of what's coming shrinks to nothingness the weight of whatever we are presently experiencing. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. You feel like you're losing heart this morning, Christian. Your shoulders are lagging down. Your, Your knees are weak. And you feel as though you really are losing heart, not taking courage. So listen to these words. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Let me say this. There's some, we, sometimes we don't even experience that. It can be happening in us and we don't really feel it and even perceive that it's happening. But it's happening. Being renewed day by day. He goes on. For this light, momentary affliction. By the way, that's, that's the way Paul would describe whatever you're experiencing. Whatever it is that you're experiencing. This light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is essentially making a double comparison. One comparison involving magnitude and another involving duration. Magnitude and duration. What is temporary and small is utterly eclipsed by what is eternal and infinitely great. Just zips right through, temporary, will be over soon, and tiny. Temporary and tiny. Eclipsed by what is forever and unfathomably great. It's amazing. And in fact, the difference is so vast... That Paul says it can't be compared. Paul's actually not comparing anything. He's saying we can't. We can't compare these things. 
You can't even compare what we're going to experience with what we are experiencing right now, no matter what it may be. No matter how awful, no matter how heart-rending, and we've experienced some things within our church here, uh, stories of people who have shared things that have happened, immense suffering, immense weight of suffering, and yet totally eclipsed by our future glory. This is how we should view all the suffering in our lives. Anything that you're experiencing right now and anything you're going to experience tomorrow or the next day, right up until you fall over, right up until the end, anything. This is a fearless kind of life because we recognize that there's nothing that could ever happen to us that would not, from God's perspective, be described in this way. Nothing. Nothing. One of the best ways we witness to our hope in Christ is by letting this kind of thing shine. You know, I've become convinced more and more as I read these sorts of things that one of the best ways God is glorified in the world is when unbelievers watch how believers suffer. You know, we think about being a witness. And oftentimes, you know, we think about what we share, the words that we share, and that's absolutely essential. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have a message to proclaim. We ought not to think in terms of let them see our lives in less words. No, no, no. More words and more living, both and. But what we find is that when unbelievers see the way believers suffer, they are drawn to this Christ. And we see that even in the early church. As you think about those who were martyred, you know, there's stories in particularly uh, when Christians were persecuted by the Romans at various times and in various ways. There would be a person going to be, to be tortured to death. I mean, in horrendously painful ways, dying slowly and painfully as a spectacle. And they would be so full of the Spirit of God by His grace that they they would have such courage and such boldness and such peace and such joy that people would watch them suffering and would want to become Christians and go suffer with them. Knowing what they were headed to. Crosses and fires and beasts. Iron chairs heated to burn flesh. And they would say, me too. It's amazing. It's unfathomable. It is incredible what the Spirit of God does as the people of God suffer well in the world among unbelievers. But it's not just grinning and bearing and suffering well. It is about suffering with the hope of this unfathomably rich glory. So that's our first point. Our suffering's reinterpreted. But now we move to the next set of verses, our world Renewed. Look at verses 19 to 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We're looking here at verses 19 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I think what Paul is doing here is putting meat on the bones of his previous comment. I think that's the primary thing that he's doing. That's the primary purpose that these verses serve is they put more meat on what he has just said. He is explaining the magnitude of future glory. 
That's what he just mentioned, the magnitude of future glory. And here he seems to be unpacking a little for us what that future glory entails. And what he says here is that it is cosmic in scope. There's our little instances of suffering. And and don't hear me making light of our sufferings. Because our sufferings can be incredibly painful in this life. And we've, we've heard testimonies recently of, of the pain and the sorrow of those sufferings. So I don't want to make light of those sufferings, but we cannot, we cannot rightly understand what Paul is saying here unless we see how, how small they shrink to in his logic. So there's our little instances of suffering in our little lives put up against the renewing, remaking, and restoring of the entire created order. From stars to ants. All of it. That's the scope that Paul has in mind. I've entitled this point, Our World Renewed, but it is actually our universe. It's everything. It's beyond our world. It's, it's all the planets. It's all the stars. It's the sun. It's the moon. It's everything remade, restored, renewed. When we talk about glorification, this theological idea, part of our salvation, we talk about justification and sanctification and glorification. When we talk about glorification, The future revealing of the sons of God with Christ, sharing in his glory. We are talking about the renewal of all things. This is filled with grandeur and beauty and wonder. This is truly, uh, with regard to the real definition of this word, this is truly awesome. Wonder. The backdrop for these verses is, of course, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19, where we read, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Remember the fall? Remember when we were in Genesis and we we looked at Adam and Eve's sin? Eve tempted She ate. She did what the one thing God said not to do. She did it. And then Adam did it so casually. And quickly, no fight, no fuss. He just did it. And so God then uh, cursed the earth. He cursed the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was just one little phrase given to describe the created order. Very good. Very good. Everything God made as he's preparing to make human beings good, 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 but when it is all done with human beings present, In the world that God has made for them, the home that God has prepared for them, very good. And then all of that changed in the garden. Human beings still made in the image of God. The world still showing its goodness in many, many, many ways. It's springtime. We're seeing that all around us. It's beautiful outside today. We still see it, but it is broken It is marred. The image of God in man is broken. It is marred. What we see here, the logic of Genesis 3, is that as man goes, or as goes man, as goes human, woman and man, so goes man's world. The created order was for man and under man. Here's how we explain that. You think about human beings and you think about the created world and you think, well, human beings sinned. Why in the world is the created order now broken? Well, the best way to understand this is that the created order was made for human beings. And so when human beings sinned against God, that very thing that was prepared for them so perfectly became broken along with them. 
But that's not all of it. It's also the case that the created order is under human beings, under man and woman. We were to take dominion of the creation. And so as the, think about it as a sort of horizontal linkage. When the relationship between God and human beings is broken, the relationship between human beings and the created order and everything within the created order becomes broken also. It is a chain reaction of brokenness and separation. And yes, I think that this is when predation began in the world. When you read Genesis 1, you, you read that the, the animals were, to, were, were provided plants to eat. And we see this even later as uh, the animals are getting onto the ark. You see language that suggests that the animals are eating the same things that the humans are eating. Don't get the impression that lions are running around the Garden of Eden eating lambs. Chasing down wildebeests and so forth. Don't get the impression that that is happening. When humanity sinned, the created order fell with him and her. And Paul describes that fall as being subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption, brokenness, frustration, and decay. That's the description of the world we live in. Brokenness, frustration, and decay. But God, who placed the created order under this curse, did not subject it to futility without hope. Notice the language that Paul uses here. It was subjected by God, and he doesn't say that explicitly, but I think that's the right way to understand this. He God subjected this, the creation was subjected in hope. It was subjected hopefully. Genesis 3.15, couched right in the middle of all of this cursing, of all of this condemnation, of all of this judgment. We read those words that we, that we came back to so frequently in Genesis. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here we see in the midst of curse, in the midst of subjection to futility, we find hope. This created order is here personified by Paul. You remember when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem riding on the donkey and he says that if, uh, if people don't cry out, the rocks the rocks themselves will cry out. Well, Jesus is saying the same thing, I think, that's being said here. That all of creation is, is as it were, personified in praise of its maker. Even inanimate objects like rocks are here for Paul, personified as waiting eagerly for Christ's return. Rocks and trees, mountains and streams. When, when, oh God, send our redeemer, our remaker, our refashioner, our liberator, when, eagerly waiting for Christ's return and the glorification of his saints. When the streams see your glory, they will be perfected. When the mountains and the trees and the animals see our glory. They will be remade and renewed. The imagery is of the creation on tiptoes. The language that Paul uses here is it, it, literally, the, the, it is as though creation is on its tiptoes, stretching out its neck, yearning longing for that day. It is like a woman groaning in the pains of childbirth, looking forward to that birth to get here. Some of you have had babies recently, know exactly what that feels like. That is used as an image for creation. Yearning, groaning, up on tiptoes, waiting. This renewal or restoration of creation is what is referred to in both the Old and New Testaments as the new heaven and the new earth. So let me give you two texts for that. From the Old Testament, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. 
And then the fulfillment of that, ultimately, as John, the apostle, saw it in a vision, exiled on the island of Patmos. Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That's what we're talking about here. I want you to notice something as we reflect on this. Notice this. This is important for us in our culture as we read and listen. The creation is not stretching out its neck. It is not standing on its tiptoes waiting for some human effort to combat climate change. The creation is not yearning for that. This is not the hope of creation. It is important for us to see this. See, our secular culture has its own eschatology, has its own understanding of renewal of the order of creation, its own understanding of universal redemption. And guess what? It has nothing to do with this God. It has nothing to do with this Christ. It has nothing to do with this Spirit. It has nothing to do with these heirs of God. Yes, of course, we are good stewards as worship unto God. We are good stewards of every little animal and every little plant and of how we treat the air and so forth. Of course, no one knows that better than Christians who read this Bible, who read Genesis chapter 1. Of course, we care for our environment because that's what we were made to do in part as those who have dominion over this world. But we don't get sucked into the world's understanding of salvation, the world's value system, the world's meta-narrative. The hope of the created order rests in the hands of God, not the hands of people, at the coming of Christ when we too will be glorified with Christ. That's the hope for every bit of air. Every stream, every glacier, every bear, everything waiting for this. So that's the second thing we see as we come to this passage. But finally, our bodies redeemed. We've looked at our sufferings reinterpreted, our world renewed, and now we see our bodies redeemed. Here we come to the heart of the passage. Look at verses 23 to 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This eager longing... And groaning of creation is shared by us. Who is the us? Who is the us here? How, are, how, how is the us described? Those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's how these people are being defined. This language of first fruits implies two very important things. First, that something has begun. That's the first part and the fruit. First fruits, something has begun. By having the first fruits, we know that something is in motion. Something has started and it's heading somewhere. Second, it implies the certainty of completion. So it tells us something has started and it tells us that what has started will most certainly be completed. There is an already not yet reality conveyed by this word first fruits. Already happened, but not yet complete. The rest of the fruits are coming. The harvest is not yet fully gathered. Here Paul describes the Spirit himself as the first fruits. By having the Spirit of God, we are assured that the rest is coming. And this is one of the great images for the Spirit that is given in the New Testament, uh, that he is the first fruits given to us uh, in expectation of what's to come. But there's another similar image that is given to us that basically says the same thing. 
And it is this imagery of being a pledge or a guarantee or a deposit or a first installment. This is another way that the Spirit is described. So Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And by the way, all those words are different ways that uh, the word here has been translated in Ephesians 1. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee or pledge or deposit or first installment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We get that first installment and it lets us know it is installed, as it were, as a first installment. It is not installed as an installment in and of itself. It is a first installment. Everything about it says there's more to come. We like that when it has to do with our bank accounts. How much more when it has to do with our eternal glory with the Christ. The possession is certain because we have the first fruits or the pledge. So what is to come? Verse 23. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're waiting for. That's what the, the first fruits is. That's what the pledge is of. This is consummation because it is comprehensive. What I mean by that is right now we live in these mortal bodies. All that that means with our enfleshed existence here. We're in Christ and yet we, we carry around our inatomness also. In Christ, carrying around Adam, that old self. And what we're seeing here is that not only in the consummation will the inner being be renewed, but the outer being, the whole person, the comprehensive you, will be remade. And that is the completion of your adoption, the redemption of your body. Your body hasn't been redeemed yet. You have been redeemed. We speak of ourselves as the redeemed of God. And the scriptures speak of us in that way. But our redemption is not yet complete. Our bodies have not yet been redeemed. That's why each of us will at some point, unless the Lord returns, have our very own funeral. Our bodies have not yet been redeemed. But it's coming. The suffering, death, and fight with the flesh as we continue our lives in these mortal bodies will be done away with. There will no longer be any brokenness in creation, any sickness or other form of natural evil to afflict us. There will no longer be indwelling sin or death of any kind. I've said this before. We can't even imagine what it will be like to not sin at all. I mean, how often do we find on our quote-unquote best days, in our quote-unquote best hours, the duplicity and twistedness of our motives, the pride of life ever so present, desires for things, covetousness, envy, how messy and distorted are the hearts even of the saints. And one day, all of that will be gone. There will no longer be duplicitous motives. There will no longer be envy of your brother or sister or pride in anything you think or know or have accomplished. It will all be shattered. It will all be gone. It will be, uh, it'll be in the distant, distant, distant past. We can't even imagine that. So what will we be like? Well, we will be like the risen Christ. Period. We will be like Christ is right now. Verse 17. We will be glorified with him. Let me give you a few verses that just unpack this a little bit. And I won't expound much on these because they are, I think, uh, there's a lot of mystery here. I mean, the, the truth is we just don't know what all that entails. I mean, we can speculate about will we be able to fly and if so how fast and all those crazy questions that we have all those things that kids tend to ask that we actually if we're honest asked also but we don't we don't say that to anybody 
uh, you know, what, what sorts of dinosaurs will we be riding on and all those kinds of questions. I mean, that's at least some of the things I've asked. Um, but all kinds of, of things. It's just wonderment. I mean, it's just filled with wonder as we think about this new heaven and earth that we will dwell in where there will be no sin and where we will actually work and do things forever in perfect bodies, in a perfect world, with perfect relationships with God and one another. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. We don't know exactly what we're going to be like, but we're going to be like Christ. That's really all we need to know. 1 Corinthians 15, 52 to 55, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. It's going to be a massive transformation, and it's going to be imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? No more death at all. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. No matter how much you work out, you have a lowly body. No matter, it doesn't matter. We all have lowly bodies. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, the body of Christ, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's what we'll be like. That's what God will do for each of us. This hope is at the center of our salvation. We were saved in this hope. That's the language that Paul uses. We were saved in this hope. We were saved unto this hope. And let me just make a quick, draw out a quick implication here. This gives us clarity about how we should present the gospel to people. We need to give a substantive gospel. You know, sometimes as a kid here, you know, ask Jesus into your heart. And that was it. There's, uh, yes, Christ dwells in his people. We've seen that. But that sort of cliched language is so watered down and and devoid of content and substance. We need to understand what it is that we're being saved to, what it is that God has done in our hearts and what it is that we have become. When we share the gospel with people, we don't need cliches and slogans. We need biblical substance. Tell people. Look, we, we are dead in our sins and Christ has come to bring the hope of glory. Tell them the gospel. Tell them the Romans gospel. We live by faith, not by sight. We live in hope. And we are looking forward to this future reality that is certain. The hope that we have in this future reality is described in the New Testament in a number of ways, but two that I think are are so pointed. One, it's described as the anchor of the soul. You're walking around, moving about this life. You're like a ship on the sea. And your hope in everything we've just looked at is like an anchor, a big old heavy iron anchor thrown overboard all the way down, just settling itself deep in the sand of the seabed, holding that ship in place. It's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. An anchor of the soul and a helmet the helmet of the hope of our salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. This hope holds us and protects our minds. All the vicissitudes of life, all the things that happen to us, all the sufferings that we face, all the temptations that come against us, we are firmly planted, anchored into the seabed and wearing a helmet, protecting our minds in this hope of glory. That is what it looks like to be a Christian. That is what it looks like to have the first fruits, the Spirit of God. And it is with this hope firmly in hand that we endure, as Paul says here, we bear up under all the sufferings that this life throws at us. And going back to verse 18, we do all of this remembering 
that those sufferings can't even be compared with the awesome glory that awaits us. Remember where we began. You can't even compare them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word this morning here in Romans 8. Father, help us, sustain us with this hope of future glory. God, I pray especially for some among us this morning who are suffering severely. Father, I just pray that you would just use this passage to comfort them. And all of us, as we prepare for whatever comes our way in this life, that we would hope, that we would wear that helmet, and we would throw down that anchor as we live out the gospel by the Spirit. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us now as we see the gospel imaged for us so vividly through the Lord's Supper. Thank you for the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he took our sin upon himself on the cross so that all who trust in him are forgiven. Thank you that by his blood, your wrath passes over us. And instead of wrath and judgment, we get life and peace. And thank you, Father, that we have in Christ now identity in a new covenant community. We belong to your church, your son's bride. We praise you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.